I am 38 years old. I grew up in rural Wisconsin, right on the Minnesota border, very near where Jacob Wetterling was from. In fact, I was six years younger than Jacob. I remember when he went missing. I remember the panic that set in in our communities, the horror on the faces of our parents and teachers and community members as they would tell us about the, the dangers that lurked in the shadows and among strangers. The fear I felt as I would see the missing posters and the suspect sketch drawings that would hang on convenience store doors and grocery store bulletin boards and billboards and light poles and really anywhere they could put it. I saw Patty Wetterling speak twice as a child. And I will never forget 16 years ago, sitting on my bed in my crappy fraternity house, drinking beer out of a can with a friend while a party is raging downstairs. And we're using my compact Presario laptop that for some reason weighed 300 pounds and put off the heat of a thousand suns. And we're scouring the internet looking for every piece of information we can possibly find about Chris Jenkins and this supposed group called the Smiley Face Killers, a group of men allegedly traveling the country, throwing college-aged men into bodies of water and making it look like accidental drownings. That's also the first time I ever remember seeing Josh Gimon's name. These are the experiences that shaped millennial men from the upper Midwest, and I think are largely the reason that I have been so fascinated by missing persons cases for really my entire adult life. In June of 2020, I was working from home, like a lot of people, and in order to avoid, you know, at-home distractions, I was like binging podcasts while I was working. I, I, I was a little late to, you know, the whole listening to podcasts thing. And so I had just started listening to shows like Serial and In the Dark and The Vanished and Unfound and so many more. It was really the combination of listening to those shows for the first time and also recalling the work that Joy Baker did together with Jared Shirell in basically solving the Jacob Wetterling case that really got me thinking about how I might be able to you know, take my own investigative experience and maybe help out in some missing persons cases. There are really two podcasts that serve as the primary format or structure inspiration for this show, and that's Up and Vanished and Find Jody. And I strongly encourage you to listen to both. I had been following a, a number of missing persons cases from across the country, and I felt like if I was going to do this, the one that I should start with should be the one that struck closest to home for me, which was and is the Josh Gimon case. A student at a Minnesota Catholic college vanished in the middle of the night. Popular college student who simply vanished. A standout student, the 20-year-old had a bright future ahead. Last president of his Maple Lake High School voted most likely to succeed by his peers and planning for a future in politics and law. That all changed November 9th, 2002. Shortly after midnight, those last to see him said he left to take the three-minute walk home. No security cameras, no cell phone. I came home that night and he wasn't there. And hasn't been seen or heard from since. And that is essentially all we know about the night Josh Gimo disappeared. The timeline not exact, the details still few. 
Gimo's disappearance would later face extra scrutiny, both for the clergy sex abuse scandal and for the investigators assigned to the case. I really feel like the resource of that case file is really important for us to try to figure out, to try to connect the dots. The investigation into Josh's disappearance is ongoing. It can be solved, you know, it's just going to take the right people and looking at the right information. From Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis, this is Simply Vanished. I'm your host, Josh Newville. There used to be three grocery stores in town. Now we don't have any. We got three convenience stores left. Oh yeah, I'm much happy. Cute little Main Street though. Here's that thing that they came out here for. It's in this building, the wine bar where they play vinyl. <laughs> There's the bookstore, the book break. Alright, park here? Yeah, any of these would be fine. There you are. Oh, not too bad. You read that book already? No, no. Okay. Hi. I'm Josh. Nice to meet you. Hi. I'm uh, doing a podcast about Brian's son, Josh. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh... That's Marilyn Groth. In 1986, she opened a bookstore in Maple Lake, a small town in central Minnesota. That same year, Brian Guimond and Lisa Cheney moved to Maple Lake with their four-year-old son and only child, Joshua Cheney Gimond. Hard to believe he'd be 40 years old this coming Saturday. It's week Josh. from today. Is that right? Oh, my. Yeah. You just kind of remember him, you know, from, high, from well, college, right. high school, and that's, yeah. Today, June 18th, 2022, is Josh's 40th birthday. But no one will be celebrating with Josh, and it's been a long time since anyone has. How long has it been? Well, it's going to be 20 years this November. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good time to kind of bring it out again. Yep, so. Maple Lake is a quintessentially Midwestern small town. It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. The kind of place where I grew up. And so I was really surprised and saddened when I drove there a few weeks ago. And I talked to random people around town and I couldn't find a single person who even knew Josh's name. This was especially disappointing because for some inexplicable reason, hardly any of Josh's friends, roommates, classmates, or mentors will say a peep about him. I mentioned this while visiting Josh's parents last Saturday, and Brian told me to hop in the car. And I said, well, I said, Marilyn probably remember him. I said, I was just in there earlier this week. Marilyn told stories of Josh as a child, him getting confirmed, playing musical instruments, singing in her church choir. It was really nice. I have a memory of um, Josh playing his slide trombone. Yeah. And with this Charlie, who's the husband of the minister, and was it Christmas or something? Oh, you know, know now that you mention that. You see, Josh Guimond wasn't your average kid. He was, quite simply, extraordinary. 
and he most definitely does not deserve to be forgotten. Junior and senior high dance together, you have to kick everybody who's under 17 out by 9.30, so they can be home by 10. What time is the curfew, Josh? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock? 10 o'clock for people under 17, and as you know, 90% of our student body at Maple Lake is under 17, including myself. That's Josh at just 16 years old, single-handedly petitioning the city council to amend the teen curfew law. I called up uh, Annandale, Howard Lake, Waverly, Big Lake, and uh, South Haven, and had them send me copies of their curfew law. And then I uh, noticed that three out of those five cities had exceptions in their laws for school, religious, and other functions. So I thought that it would make it easier if Maple Lake was to adopt a set exception. And here's the thing. He wasn't just successful. He blew them away. Excellent. I'm yeah. impressed. <laughs> I learned everything I know from the movie. Oh, oh, come on don't, don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. One of the best. Oh. Well, first of all, I just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge you. This is um, well spoken. Yeah, incredible. Very, very impressed. I didn't say we we're going to do anything. <laughs> well, I would certainly like am impressed. How old are you, Josh? Uh, 16. You're 16. When I was 16, I don't think I would have had the guts to go approach the Duluth. And in terms of achieving success through hard work, Josh was just getting started. He was his high school class president, vice president of his student council for four years. He easily could have been president of that too, but he wanted the VP spot because that also made him the student representative to the school board. As a sophomore, he got the high school mock trial program off the ground. In February of 1999, he won a seat as a junior page at the Minnesota House of Representatives. And here's Josh giving the closing to his high school commencement speech. The road ahead is a long and difficult one. Fortunately, we've been very well equipped to celebrate the conclusion of the last chapter of the first volume of our lives. Today is truly ours. We've passed, we're gonna graduate, and we are the future. We won't let you down, thank you. These are just some of Josh's accomplishments before he even started college. Although today's episode is primarily focused on the timeline surrounding Josh's disappearance, in future episodes you'll learn more about him, meet more of his family, and see for yourself why his high school class voted him most likely to succeed. I've been searching in the dark Trusting every has not been told Cause every corner of these woods is hollow I can't see in the dark On June 1st, 2020, I sent a Facebook message to a page named The Hunt for Josh, the Joshua Guimon story. In it, I explained that I was interested in producing a multi-part investigative podcast centered on Josh's disappearance. Seven minutes later, I received a response from a man named Justin Thole. Hi, you've reached Justin. Just leave a message at the phone and I'll get back to you. Thanks. 
Hey, Justin, it's Josh. You're not going to believe this. Um, These days, I suspect he regrets responding to that message. I have been amateur investigating the Josh Gimone case for less than six months. Justin Thole has been at it for more than six years. He's an independent filmmaker, and we've combined our investigative efforts. His research skills are amazing, and he's done a phenomenal amount of work. And in his own words, and perhaps those of his family, he has an obsession with solving this case. Working with him has been incredible. We've put our heads together, approached the case in slightly different ways, shared our findings with law enforcement, and are about to unveil some of the biggest developments in the Josh Gimone case in 20 years. This is a great time to jump in and mention that for every fact and assertion made on this podcast, we make every effort to corroborate that information using independent and verifiable sources, cross-referencing data where possible. However, some of the information we are relying upon has been reported by individuals and is not always verifiable. This is an active and ongoing investigation. If any of the information you hear on this podcast concerns you in any way whatsoever, if you believe any of the information is incorrect, even if the details seem small, please call us at 612-439-3646 or visit our website at simplyvanished.com. Hello, hello. One, two, three, four, five, six. Check, check. That's my friend Ted Haller. He is also an attorney, but unlike me, has actual experience in broadcast journalism. I sat down with him on Monday night to talk about the timeline and potential explanations in Josh's disappearance. I wanted to ask you because, you know, it's almost two decades since he vanished, right? Um, This was back in 2002, which creates challenges. So obviously memories fade, evidence gets lost, but we also have to remember how different technology was back then. People didn't all have cell phones. No one had a smartphone obviously, which could have created some breadcrumbs of what happened. So how does that pose any challenges to try to go back and and use technology to maybe figure out what was going on? Well, it's interesting. I think in in some ways, the technology was more available to use then than they realized at the time. And so, for example, Josh had a computer. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a fancy new MacBook or anything like that. It was an older PC and you know, I think he first got it in like 99 or 2000 or something, mm-hmm. but he had a computer nonetheless. And that computer, as it turns out, is a treasure trove of information. But, you know, in 2002, when he goes missing, you know, I don't think law enforcement or a lot of people, most people really thought of a computer or electronic type evidence mm-hmm. as, you know, critical, you know, valuable evidence. They were still kind of in an older mindset uh, about what sort of evidence was, was crucial. So, yeah, Josh didn't have a cell phone, no. Um, and you know, he, there are, there are other kinds of evidence like phone card evidence and things, but, uh, certainly we don't have the, the GPS, you know, tracking the ping, you know, tower pings or anything like that, that make these sorts of cases easier to solve today. Yeah. Cause like today, you know, college friends and adult friends, we sit around on our own smartphones and laugh and share videos, but they did the same thing back then. Only they would just kind of take turns using someone's computer to look at stuff. Right. <laughs> That's a, and Josh did exactly that with his friends. In fact, on the day that Josh went missing, that's one of the activities that he was engaged in with his friends, in fact. So Josh goes missing um, in the early hours of 
November 10th. So it's really November 9th is the day that's leading into his disappearance, right? That's right. So a lot of scrutiny on what happened that day, November 9th, I assume. Like every minute of that day is probably crucial. Um, I mean, he wakes up, is that a Saturday? November 9th? Yep. So on a college campus, Saturday's a fun day. Lots of who knows what's gonna happen. Um, it's a weekend. Do you know when he wakes up and kind of roughly, what does he, what does he do? From 10.30 a.m. until 12.30 p.m., Josh researched Alexander Hamilton in preparation for a paper he was writing for his history class. During that same time frame, his computer also registered activity on AOL Instant Messenger. This messaging activity is believed to be with his ex-girlfriend, Katie. Josh went to the library between 12.30 and 1 p.m. to check out books relating to his history paper. He returned to his dorm at 12.57 p.m., Josh then continued using his computer to work on his history paper until approximately 2.30 p.m. During the next hour, Josh checked his email and searched online for seasonal employment near his hometown. At 3.46 p.m., Josh visited the College Movie Station website and viewed the movie schedule for that day. Just nine minutes later, at 3.57 p.m., Josh entered his dorm room using his electronic access badge. It is unknown where he went in that short interim. During the 4 p.m. hour, Josh worked on a document in preparation for a budget request meeting for the Pre-Law Society that was scheduled the next day. At 4.54 p.m., Josh performed a Yahoo search for the movie Brewster's Millions. Josh then had dinner with one or more of his friends, including Nick, during the 5 or 6 p.m. hours. And eventually he does what most young college men are going to do. He meets up with friends, right? Yeah. Uh, he had a friend come over around 7. After dinner, at approximately 6.40 p.m., Josh's friend Alex joined him in his dorm room. There, they began listening to music, drinking beer, generally socializing, and using the web to search for things such as information about beer, brandy, and brew pubs. At approximately 8.30 p.m., Josh invited Alex and Nick outside to smoke celebratory cigars. These were cigars he purchased the weekend before at a mock trial tournament, as was his custom. Nick politely declined the cigar, but talked with them for a few minutes before leaving to hang out with Josh's ex, Katie, whom Nick had become friends with the year before. Josh and Katie had dated for five years, meeting in high school, going to college together, and breaking up approximately one to two months prior to his disappearance. During the 10 o'clock hour, Josh and Alex's friend, Greg, joined them in Josh's dorm room. There, they continued to drink beer, socialize, and use the internet. They looked up sports scores, comedy websites, and funny things in other students' shared drives. And I know this is really important, so maybe let's take this in, in bites. Um, so the main event of the night is some get-together at Nate's at a different dorm. Right. So how would Josh get to that dorm from his? How far apart are they? How long is the walk? Is there obstacles in the way? Yeah, so we actually set up, a, we, we put a aerial photograph uh, with kind of some markings on the website to help listeners get a sense for this. And it's about a five minute walk. I actually just walked it last week. 
We know he gets to this get-together. Do we know approximately what time he arrives? There is a lack of clarity surrounding the exact time that Alex, Greg, and Josh jointly made the five-minute walk from their Mauer House dormitory to their friend Nate's dorm at Menton Court in the Flintown area. There are some reports that they left at 11 p.m. and others that they left at 11.30. A wrinkle in the timeline is that Josh badged into his dorm room at 11.06 p.m. There is no explanation for this re-entry. Perhaps he forgot something. Perhaps he let someone in. We simply do not know. Based on all available data, the best estimate for the time they arrived at Nate's dorm is between 11.15 and 11.30 p.m. So, do we know what these kids are doing at this get-together? Yeah, they were talking and playing some Texas Hold'em, and that's about it. I mean, this is not some wild frat rager we're talking about. Right. This was a group of approximately, all told, 10 people, and most of them Josh knew. Several of them were in his core group of friends. There were a couple people that he didn't know, but... They knew other people there, and it wasn't like the door was open and random people were coming in and out or anything. At some point, Josh leaves, right? Sometime between, from what we understand, 11.45 and midnight, and you know, my sense is that it was a little closer to midnight, but sometime between 11.45 and midnight, Josh gets up and leaves. And there's some dispute amongst people about whether he says anything or whether he just gets up and leaves. Some, at least one person in particular, recalls him somehow implying that he had somewhere to be. And another person, or at least one other person, doesn't recall him saying anything at all. And that's totally conceivable that both of those things could be true. He may have said something loud enough for only a few people to hear and others maybe didn't hear anything. Yeah, it'd be almost weird if you made some giant announcement to the entire room, right? Um, right. But what is really important probably is going to be if he did tell someone he had somewhere to be, that's going to be pretty crucial, right? Right. And it doesn't sound like he told anyone explicitly that he had anywhere to be. One of the party attendees, his name is Eric. Um, we're not going to provide last names. Uh, and when we do, those names do come up, we're going to bleep them out. But Eric, one of the the attendees, if you will, he does specifically recall Josh implying that he had somewhere to be. He, the way that Eric described it is that he, there's something about the way that, that Josh said he needed to go that it, it strongly suggested he had somewhere to be. That's, that's all we know. And you know, that, that perception could have been wrong. That perception could have been dead on, right? We just don't know. So um, they see, do they, they see Josh leave, right? The people at the get-together, they some see do. him, some do, yep. some see him leave. Yep, and some assume that he's just leaving to go to the bathroom, some assume he's heading back to his dorm. I, I think there was some uncertainty until he had been gone for a bit, whether he had actually left for some people. Are there any accounts of anyone seeing him that night walking somewhere in between the two buildings? There is. So. Present day, I should point out that if you look at a, a current map of St. John's University, I was just there this past week, they actually built a bridge directly over the lake that didn't exist then. 
And likewise, there are there were a couple dorm buildings that were older, kind of maybe 60s style. Um, I looked at them and thought energy crisis. <laughs> so I'm guessing they're that, that, but from that time uh-huh. that are now gone. And they put up these massive new, very nice dorms that, right on the lake. And um, they weren't there before. But where those dorms that are now gone were, uh, someone who knew Josh well, very well, in fact, she reportedly saw Josh walk behind those dorms. And so this would have been on the path leaving Metancourt headed towards the roadway to walk back towards his own dorm, potentially, or somewhere else possibly, but, but that direction. She saw him leave just before midnight, from what I understand. Is that probably the last time he was seen? From, that's, that's correct. So that does sound to be the last confirmed sighting of Josh, yes. He obviously has these friends who live in the same building as his, some next to him, some above and below. They get back at some point that night or in the early hours, do they see his room? Do they see him, his door open, anything like that? Josh had five roommates in his dorm, Mauer House number 105. The dorm had four floors. The bottom floor contained the common spaces and two bedrooms occupied each of the top three floors. Nick and Josh each had a bedroom on the fourth, very top floor. Nick arrived home at approximately 2.45 and has publicly stated that Josh was not home at that time. Josh's roommate Greg arrived home just prior to 3 a.m., and it is not known whether he knew one way or another as to Josh's whereabouts. Josh had three additional roommates. We have confirmed that one was gone the entire weekend, and presently it is not clear as to whether the other two were home at that time. Another weird thing you told me that gave me chills, and I'm not sure there's much to it, so you can tell me is that Josh had a computer and his computer was not just playing music, but skipping songs after he had gone missing. So this really messes with the timeline. And this is also something that is brand new and has only really been learned in the past year. And we we have Justin Thole to thank for this discovery, but Josh had a player, a music player on his computer, a music match player and Josh's music player started playing music at 11.52 p.m. A song was skipped at 11.53. Another song was skipped, and another song was skipped all up until 12.32 a.m. Which suggests someone's at the computer hitting a button, right? From everything that I've been able to determine thus far in talking to computer experts, it is highly likely, yes, that someone had to manually press the play button and manually press those skip buttons. It's got weird stuff on Josh's computer. You've got the monk abuse scandal. You've got strange men following men on campus, oddities in the woods, some other stuff, including chat rooms. How are you gonna chase down all these leads? That's, you know, it's sort of been like drinking out of a fire hose, Uh trying to also do my regular job and then do this. And one of the struggles in this case is that there has just been, and this happens in small towns in cases like this from what I understand, 
no one wants to talk. And you know, between the history with St. John's and the you know, criticism that's been levied at the Stearns County Sheriff's Department and St. John's, and then you know, some of the anger that's bubbled up between you know, some members of Josh's family and some friends and stuff over the years, it's gotten to the point that very few people are willing to talk about this case. And that's too bad because the lack of communication in 20 years is making it hard to sift through all of these pieces of information and all of these potential explanations. There are so many questions that could be answered if people would just talk. And I am stunned by the, just the amount of silence around in this case. I, I, I can't, I, I just can't imagine. You know, like I said, I identify with Josh so much. I am truly just frightened at the idea that I could go missing and this would be the same sort of collective response. This collection of, you know, whether you want to call it bureaucratic incompetence or factional sort of differences or selfish interests or fear or whatever, all of these things that have prevented people from working collaboratively together, talking, communicating to help finally put an end to this case. It's like if you could get all these people together and put them in one giant room and just talk it out. I imagine you could have so much new discoveries just from something like that. And that's kind of what the goal of this podcast really is. I mean, if you if you can't get everyone together in a room and, and you can't, right? I mean, at this point, not only are there practical reasons for that, but there's just all this years of fear and resentment mm -hmm. and whatever maybe this discussion and having you know people on to the extent that they're willing to be on and, and maybe talking about some anonymous tips that they share you know we, we set up a tip line on our website it's 612-439-3646 i believe and people can call and leave voicemails and they can tell us if they want them to be anonymous they can also email us they can submit anonymous messages on our website without having to record or call anything and you know whether it's active participation by being on the podcast or whether it's through something more informal like that or frankly whether it's just simply picking up the phone and calling the Stearns County Sheriff's Department mm -hmm. and giving them the tip I mean we just we really just need communication here uh, and Stearns County is is keeping it pretty close to the chest different departments play you know, cold cases differently. And Stearns County is one that they really don't collaborate a lot. They don't provide or share a lot of information with others. And, you know, I think we should respect that decision, but simultaneously do what we can to help advance their investigation. And that is going to mean talking. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this answer of, oh, well, investigators are doing it, they're taking care of it. Part of the problem that the investigators are having is that no one's talking. And because no one's talking, they're not, they're not just not calling them, they're not talking to other people, they're not talking to each other. And so people aren't able to connect the dots to put things together. And that's really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I get the argument why investigators don't want too much information to come out because that can hurt them and their abilities to interrogate people. But my God, when two decades go by, maybe you need something out there just to sort of grease the wheel and, and get stuff coming in. Yeah, and you know, to their credit, I you know, sat down with detectives and advised them uh, about this podcast, about our intentions to cover 
you know, many of these leads, these potential explanations for what happened to Josh. Um, and you know, their, their response was great. Uh, the more people that can know about Josh's case and hear about it and talk about it, you know, the more likely we are to get somewhere. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Simply Vanished. Our next episode will come out on Monday, June 27th, and it will be bi-weekly on Mondays uh, thereafter, although stay tuned for bonus episodes uh, potentially in the interim weeks. Please, please, please rate us, subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Additionally, watch the Google and Apple app stores for the Simply Vanished app, which should be coming out sometime in the next week or so. Our website, simplyvanished.com. You can access our message board uh, where you can play armchair detective with others. There's more information, of course, about each case on our app and on the website. And additionally, there will be links to family websites and family official GoFundMe pages. For example, there is an active GoFundMe page for the Josh Gimone case for, their, for his family uh, for investigative purposes. You can find a link to that on the website and via the app. Thank you so much. We'll talk with you soon.